the American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 2, The Era of Good Feelings and the American System. Welcome to the American History Podcast, hosted by Sean Morswick. Okay, so welcome back. Um, this is Crash Course Episode 2, The Era of Good Feelings and the American System. As always, I thank you for your support. Um, if you would like email updates about the show, just go to our website, www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com, and you can sign up for email updates. You can also find uh, sources there on Season 1, and soon I'll have Season 2 up. Today is the 12th of March. I hope to have them up by later this week um you can also follow us on twitter at american hiscast i'm not a facebook fan so yeah we don't have a facebook page and uh, i don't see that happening anytime soon um but again thank you for support if you like the show please go to itunes or whatever app you're using and please give us a good review if you notice something wrong with the show please feel free to email me that's the easiest way to get my attention and um I will do whatever I can to fix it or to address your issue or your concern. Okay, so the era of good feelings. Historian Robert Remini, in his 2002 book on John Quincy Adams, is just one of several specialists who convey the idea that this period is ironically named, as the history of the period was actually quite divisive between the factions of the Democratic-Republican Party. The period is associated, of course, with the president of presidency of James Monroe, who was elected to office in 1816, and he was the last of the so-called Virginia dynasty. For 32 years of the first 36 years of the United States, the president was from Virginia, so basically four of the first five. Now, as we mentioned in the previous show, the Federalist Party died in the aftermath of the War of 1812, and this election is pretty much it. Um, I didn't make it clear last time, but the party died for three main reasons. Number one, supposed disloyalty during the War of 1812, which in the United States, that's usually a killer for you. Um, you got to be loyal during a war. That's just the way it is. Not that I agree with that, but you understand what I'm saying. Um, number two, the fact that New England appeared to be extremely sectional in the way um, as far as its own interests are concerned. And number three, the fact that Jefferson simply co-opted many of their important ideas, such as adopting to some extent Hamilton's financial plan, um, the promotion of expansion and loose constitutional construction, at least in some cases. So the ironic thing is that the Federalists ended up reversing many of their initial positions. Originally, they were quite nationalist, and now they opposed Republican nationalism. They were originally loose, all about loose construction, but now they suddenly advocated strict construction um, or interpretation of the Constitution, especially when it came to internal improvements. And so this is going to be a theme if you read any American history, and this is probably for all of the listeners out there, but especially our listeners overseas. Um, 
this is a theme in American history where the parties kind of will reverse their positions um, based on the fact that the other guy is in office. So, for example, in recent times, in up to about 2006, 2008 or so, the Democrats sounded very much like they were against the war on terrorism, especially around 2004, 2005, um, the 2006 election. They were very much anti-war in Iraq and Afghanistan, so forth and so on. Um, But then once they come into office, they pretty much kind of do the same thing. They sounded very anti-interventionist, but by 2010, 2012, the United States is um, involving itself in places like Libya, Syria, um, doubling down in Afghanistan, that sort of thing. And so just kind of keep that in mind as we go forward um, through the show. Not necessarily this season, but in seasons to come. Now, the term itself, the era of good feelings, was coined by newspaper writer Benjamin Russell um, following Monroe on his 1817 inspection tour of military bases, just in case you were wondering, where does this term come from? Now, as I said, the term the era of good feelings was really a misnomer as there were serious issues dividing the nation, a total of eight to be exact, Um, maybe more, but at least eight. Number one, the emergence of sectionalism. East, West, and South. Um, a lot of times you hear about um, kind of the North and the South, but it's really um, the East, the West, and the South. Number two, the issue of the tariff. The East and the South were opposed to the tariff while the West favored it. Um, internal improvements, again, opposed by the East and the South while the West favored it. The Bank of the United States was an issue which was still to be debated and which was debated. Um, the West and the South opposed this, while the eastern bankers were in favor of it. Uh, Number five, the sale of public lands, something which the South and the West favored. Number six, the Panic of 1819, which caused Western hostility towards the eastern bankers. Number seven, the issue of slavery in Missouri, which fed the rise of sectional tensions, and that was resolved somewhat by the Missouri Compromise of 1820. And then finally, number eight, Republican one-party rule began balkanizing into factions, which is going to lead to uh, the second party system in the 1820s. Now, for the rest of this episode, I want to deal with two important aspects of this era, Henry Clay's American system and the Panic of 1819. Now, the former contained three important aspects, the Bank of the United States, tariffs, and internal improvements. The second Bank of the United States was voted on by Congress in 1816, Now, this was, of course, a central bank, and it was argued the lack of a central banking authority during the War of 1812 had hurt the economy. You can see um, Murray Rothbard's A History of Money and Banking in the United States if you want more on this topic. It's an excellent book, by the way. Now, the conventional argument states that local banks sprung up all over the country during the war, and the lack of regulation led to the country being flooded by depreciated banknotes that ended up hurting the war effort. Now, this is partially correct. The part that is left out of the tale is that these banks and the increase in banknotes was being spurred on by the dictates of war finance. New England, which was more conservative monetarily than the other regions and was also opposed to the war, bought very little of the public debt that was used to finance it, it being the war. Now, to make a long story short, the U.S. government was paying for New England manufactured goods 
with a mass amount of inflated banknotes that were being printed outside of New England. Okay? When the New England banks began calling upon other banks to redeem these notes in specie currency or in hard currency, gold and silver, um, the inflating banks faced imminent insolvency. They didn't have the gold or the silver to back up these notes. As a result, the governments in the states allowed these banks to to suspend payment for debts in specie. What Marianne Rothbard notes was the most flagrant violation of property rights in all of American history. The banks were allowed to waive their contractual obligations to pay in specie currency, while they themselves were able to continue to expand their loans and operations, while at the same time forcing their customers to repay the loans as usual. Just a bit hypocritical, to say the least. In other words, government regulations and policies, all of which were created to help not the average customer, but the allies of the politicians, the banks, caused the problem. So what's the solution? Well, the solution they came up with? Give the politicians and their allies in the banking system even more power. Sounds reasonable. With this in mind, the U.S. government created the second bank of the United States. Modeled after the first bank, it had three and a half times the capital. The purpose of this institution was not to crack down on the state banks. No, the purpose was to assist the state-supported banks in their inflationary course rather than crack down on them. Proof of this was seen the moment the bus, the Bank of the United States, opened its doors in January 1817. Now, for this part of the story, I turn to the... um, Great, he's just a fantastic scholar, Murray Rothbard. Quote, At the same time that it was establishing the new bank in April 1816, Congress passed a resolution of Daniel Webster, at that time a Federalist champion of hard money, requiring that after February 20th, 1817, the United States should accept as payments for debts or taxes only specie, treasury notes, bank of the U.S. notes, or state, state bank notes redeemable in specie on demand. End quote. In other words, none of the irredeemable notes that were issued by state, state banks would be accepted after that date. Instead of using this as a chance to force the banks to abide by their original contract, the second bus, in a meeting with representatives from the leading urban banks, agreed to issue $6 million worth of credit in cities around the country, with the exception of Boston, before insisting upon specie payments from debts that it was owed by the state banks. So the agreement meant that the state banks would support each other in an emergency and that they would then resume specie payments thanks to the massive inflation that was just foisted upon the country. Now, the ironic point in all of this is that the Jeffersonians, once opponents of central banking, used the same arguments as had Alexander Hamilton in 1791 to get the second bank bill passed while the Federalists were now denouncing it as unconstitutional. (laughs) The bank immediately began to inflate the currency, surprise, surprise, and within 18 months had added $19.2 million to the nation's money supply with the pyramid ratio of 9.24 or a reserve ratio of 0.11, a spectacular inflation of the money supply. Now, according to Clay, Henry Clay, The Bank of the United States would provide a depository for federal funds. They would make credit available through much of the country and help to improve the economy. By 1818, 
there was a massive inflationary-fueled uh, boom, followed by the inevitable bust in 1819, the first time the nation had experienced a nationwide boom-and-bust cycle, driven by rapid and massive inflation, uh, quickly succeeded by contraction of the money supply and credit. The Bank of the United States would be killed by Andrew Jackson in 1832. But this is not a coincidence. Whenever you get a central bank, you're going to get boom and bust cycles because they inflate the money supply. And that throws the economy out of whack. Now, the second part of the American system was the implementation of a protective tariff, the first one in U.S. history. This would turn into the most divisive and sectional issue in the nation during the antebellum period, perhaps only slightly less divisive than the slave issue. This tariff imposed a 20 to 25 percent duty on all imports, more than double the Hamiltonian tariff of the 1790s. This was the opening salvo in the protective ter- uh, trend in U.S. history, and as I mentioned, it led to sectional battle, uh, the sectional battle represented by the three great congressional leaders um, of the day, John C. Calhoun, Daniel Webster, and Henry Clay, a.k.a. the Great Triumvirate. We could do an entire episodes on each one of these men. So important are they to the history of the United States in the first half of the 19th century. Suffice it to say, at least for now, that John C. Calhoun, representing South Carolina, was the man who most epitomized the South at this point. He was, in the War of 1812, a war hawk and strongly nationalist. While he initially supported the tariff, he eventually came to oppose it, claiming that it enriched New England businessmen at the expense of the South. The second member of the triumvirate, Daniel Webster, hailed from New Hampshire and represented the North. He opposed the tariff, as shippers in New Hampshire were fearful that the tariff would damage industry in his state. And remember, at this point, New England was not totally industrial yet, and in New Hampshire, the way they were making their money was off shipping. So that brings us to the third member of the triumvirate, Henry Clay. Clay saw tariffs as a way to develop a strong domestic market. He believed eastern trade would flourish under the protection of a high tariff and that the revenue um, would be, could be used to fund construction of roads and canals in the west, especially in the Ohio Valley. Frontier settlers criticized the horrible road system, and thus Clay was attempting to respond to that criticism. He also believed that foodstuffs and raw materials from the South and the West could then flow into the North and into the East to the benefit of everyone involved. So with this in mind, Congress took up an internal improvements bill in 1817, which President Madison vetoed, claiming it was unconstitutional. The legislation would have given money to the states for internal improvements, and the bill, which was reintroduced under Madison's successor, James Monroe, was again vetoed. Jeffersonians, in general, opposed direct federal support of infrastructure or interstate um, internal improvements, seeing this as a state's rights issue. Believe it or not, this sort of thing was not just opposed by Southerners, but it was also opposed by New Englanders, who feared federally built roads and canals would drain population out of their region and create competing states in the West. Thus, Prior to the Civil War, most internal improvements, except for railroads, were done at the expense of state and local governments. 
Now this brings us full, ter- full circle to the topic of the economy. We mentioned the second bank of the United States earlier, and it's time that we ter- return to that topic. In 1819, the economy experienced a deep depression. In fact, this was the first financial panic since the critical period of the 1780s under the Articles of Confederation. Now, from this point forward, panics and depressions would occur about every two decades, 1837, 1857, 1873, 1907, 1929. The immediate cause of the 1819 panic was overspeculation on frontier lands by banks, fueled by the inflationary policies of the central bank. Indeed, starting in July of 1818, when the bank and government officials finally realized they had gone too far, they engaged in a series of contractions, forced curtailment of loans, contractions of credit in the South and the West, and they refused to redeem their shaky branch bank notes at par. They also purchased millions of dollars worth of specie from abroad. The result of the Panic of 1819 uh, was people started calling to reform and pressure politicians for increasing democracy in the country. Western farmers viewed the bank as an evil financial monster, while the hard-hit poor called for more responsive government. New legislation resulted in smaller parcels of land being sold for lower prices, and by the Civil War, Western lands uh, was being given away nearly for free. There was also widespread calls to end the practice of imprisoning debtors, and some states did pass legislation reducing debtor prisons. Finally, Monroe was elected in 1820 with a nearly unanimous vote in the Electoral College, the only president in American history to be re-elected after a major panic. Now, the last thing I want to discuss is westward expansion, something we've touched upon but we've not delved into. Nine new states joined the Union between 1791 and 1819. These new states, unlike the South and the East, were less focused on issues of states' rights. They depended heavily on the federal government, and they contained a wide variety of peoples who had immigrated from the East Coast. Most of these states were admitted alternately free and slave, and the supreme goal was to maintain a balance in Congress between the two sections, slave section and free section. So why westward expansion? Westward movement had been significant since the colonial era. People were coming to the United States with the intention of gaining land. Remember, land in Europe was hard to come by, if you could purchase it at all. In the Americas, land was available, and it was fairly cheap. Indeed, it was cheap land in the Ohio Territory, which attracted European immigrants by the thousands. Further, Land exhaustion in the older tobacco states also drove people westward. Third, speculators accepted small down payments, which made the purchasing of land easier. A fourth factor was economic depression and the embargo of the early 19th century, all of which helped to push people west, looking for better opportunities. A fifth factor was the defeat of American Indians over the previous decades in the Ohio region, That helped to clear the frontier of obstacles and draw in more settlers. And then finally, the revolution in transportation um, helped to improve the land routes into the the Ohio Valley. An example of this was the development of the Cumberland Road, which started in 1811 
and went from Maryland to Illinois. You also had the advent of the steamboat in 1811, which made travel upsteam, upstream possible. And another uh, transportation revolution fact was uh, canals beginning in 1826 helped to increase travel between the east and the west. Now, having said that, the west was still weak in political influence and in population. Thus, it would ally with other sections with regard to national political issues. What the West often wanted was land reform, cheap transportation, and they often fought against the Bank of the United States. So in the decades to come, the West would become more and more important in American politics. Okay, next time we will delve into the Missouri Compromise, uh, a very important aspect of the era of good feelings. I hope you've enjoyed uh, this episode of The Crash Course, and if you did, please leave us a, a good review or rating on iTunes. That really helps. You're doing us a big favor. You can, again, check out the website, www.theamericanhistorypodcast. Sign up for email updates, check out sources, all that good stuff. Um, if you're a social media guy, you can follow us on Twitter, at American Hiscast. Until next time, good day. <laughs>